If you want to create more goods in general for the future, you need more investment. If the humans are useless, then it's better for them just to leave that economy. Everyone starts their life with a very equal footing, equal opportunities. Machines can't replace humans because machines don't know what humans want. Hi, I'm Greg Mustreader, and this is my podcast on rationality, transhumanism, and trends of development in society. Today, here with me is Udara Pires, a member of the Research Advisory Board of the Central Bank of Russia, an Oxford graduate, a brilliant economist. Hi, Udara. Hi, Greg. Uh, well, today I'd love to ask a lot of dumb questions about mm -hmm. economy and where it's all headed, how it all works. Uh, I've recently seen uh, your Zoom conference uh, with mm -hmm. the other uh, notable economists discussing perspectives of the economy post-COVID. Uh, first question, are you generally optimistic about uh, the um, coming months and uh, coming couple of years? Will there be growth, in your opinion? Um, as uh, the answer you'd get from most economists, is, is the answer is, it's not clear. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, It's not clear in the sense, uh, the simple answer is that this current crisis is not like um, the global financial crisis because it's caused essentially by government policy. Um, and for health reasons, the governments have said people can't go to work and that's what's caused the economic downturn. So then, of course, if you remove this restriction, then the economy will bounce back. Um, however, this period in which businesses were closed has led to people losing their jobs. It has led to people who are working their wages to go down. And uh, this has then caused certain industries to decline. Now, um, the, the way the modern economy works, it's not you buy a good from a shop. There's an entire supply chain behind each product. Um, there's a interesting video on uh, YouTube about how much it costs to produce your own sandwich. How much? Uh, I think the cost was several hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. And this was basically replicating the entire uh, supply chain. And so, um, you know, when the economy stops, this entire supply chain stops. And then if there are certain parts of this supply chain which are affected, then the entire supply chain is affected. So things like, you know, the logistic services, the ingredients manufacturers, um, the R&D facilities. And so if there are certain parts of it that start getting affected, then it takes much more time for the economy to bounce back. So what we've seen, because essentially the global economy has dep been depressed for about three months, there has been a lot of layout, layoffs, um, there's been a lot of um, reorganization, restructuring. Um, as most of your listeners would be aware, they would have spent more time buying things from online shops. Mm -hmm. And so all of these changes will have at least a medium-term effect. And um, so the simple answer is that the economy will bounce back once these restrictions are undone, but there will be... Um, Uh, sort of a prolonged effect, a slower recovery after this, trying to get back to the original um, position. Uh, 
so the catchphrase that's been used is um, to ask whether this will be a V-shaped recovery, whether the economy will go down and mm -hmm. bounce back. Um, as um, my guest online panel discussion, um, Oleg Zamulin, who's the head of research at Spurbank, said, it's more likely to be a, a crooked V recovery. Mm. which means that it'll bounce back, but then at a certain point, it'll grow back gradually. Um, so I think that's what uh, we should all be expecting, that things will get better, but they won't get back to where they were um, very soon. The other aspect, I think, which is very important about this current crisis is that it's global, um, and it's also associated with significant political changes around the world. And how these political changes will play out will also affect the way the economy will, uh, the global economy will move going forward. You mostly mean the situation in the U.S.? I mean, uh, definitely the situation in the U.S. They have a big election coming up. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, in China, the way the Chinese government mm -hmm. will move forward. Um, and uh, don't forget the U.K. has just come out of Brexit has just come out of the European Union and they're negotiating trade deals. Um, so even today they're negotiating their first post-Brexit trade deal with Japan. And um, so all of these things take time. So really we're living in very, very interesting times. The world has re very much changed um, from what it was in the late 90s. It's a new world with different... Um, ways of doing business, different poles of power. And uh, the certainty that we had before is very much gone. And it's we're sort of trying to work out, mm. in a, it's a more of a short, medium term, how to best uh, position ourselves. I think that's the best we can do. What if uh, this situation becomes uh, permanent? What, what if uh, um, this virus becomes the new reality? We don't find the vaccine, Imagine this, how will the economy bounce back and will it? Um, so if you take the worst case scenario, that suppose that the governments did nothing and, uh, you know, the mortality rates that we're going to get out of this are going to be significantly higher than the standard flu, but it's not um, targeting... Um, young healthy people who are def who are going to be the most economically productive group of people uh, so that means that in terms of economic output the effect would be limited um, this is going to have significant issues in terms of um, the health system it's going to have significant issues in terms of the political system because mind you most people in the political system are in the older age group yeah um, uh, but in terms of pure economic activity, it's not going to have that much of an effect. So people dying uh, it is, uh, is not such a huge impact uh, on the economy? Not to the extent of previous pandemics in the past. Um, so the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the Spanish flu killed more people, more soldiers getting, American soldiers getting to Europe than actually died in Europe in World War One. Yeah, I think it took like uh, dozens of millions of lives. Uh, yeah, I think it was 50, 60 million. So in terms of that, there's no evidence that the severity of this is that high, especially 
for um you know younger age people but still people will be afraid you know to go out to to consume to spend money yeah people will be afraid or more cautious um to engage in the activities they were doing before but i think it's there'll be a switching um you know there's rather than going to a, a bar or a pub with lots of people they may have a smaller group of friends they may entertain at home or in a park and in terms of how much they spend it really depends on how much they earn so as long as there's economic activity which supports these these changing preferences there's no reason why um the economy should go down a lot significantly you know um it's uh, it's not how much people spend depends on how much they earn and how much they earn depends on how much they spend so as long as people produce goods that are needed um we shouldn't see such a decline but there's definitely going to be a short to medium term effect of this switching which uh, other trends uh, of development of the economy of the global economy would you highlight as the most important for the coming years. So I teach a international finance course to my um master students at uh, the High School of Economics and in the first lecture I show them I ask them uh if you look at world trade as a percentage of world GDP in 1901-07 in what year did the world reach that again? and the answer was actually 1990 mhm so the world was very integrated there was a lot of global trade going on in the late 1800s um and it's to do with the fact that in the late 1800s the US started entering in the world markets one from um commodities such as uh, meat and agriculture and the second from oil and so these two things meant that the US was um very much engaged in world trade and they were the ones that ended up financing um much of the first and second world war because they were running current account surpluses in that period so what happened in the intervening years was wars um uh, the cold war and once you know the berlin wall fell the soviet union fell the world became more integrated but there's no reason why this is a permanent move and what we see not just from Trump but we see from Brexit we see from um movements in uh within Europe it's uh going back to this idea of the national economy um domestic production and having less international trade and um i mean i you know the simple answer is say this is just uh, populism nationalism mm-hmm. But if you look at um what's causing this, uh if you look in the US, uh the classic statistic is to look at uh the wages of blue collar workers. They haven't increased since they haven't or they've barely increased since the 70s in real terms. Whereas if you look at the white collar workers, if you look at CEOs, they've increased astronomically, but if you look at educated white collar workers, they've increased a lot. And so, you know, what we've seen is that the increase in income inequality yeah is what's driving this nationalism which is driving protectionism and I think this is something that will be very difficult to um undo. Mm, what are the possible ways to undo this? 
because everybody's talking about uh, how uh, much inequality there is, especially in the U.S. and some other countries. Uh, this rift uh, grows even even deeper. What, um, should, what should we do? So the, I think the reason why um, it hasn't been such an issue until recently is because um, the entrance of China to the global labor market um, and that has meant that there was a lot of consumer goods which became very cheap. So even though real incomes didn't increase, people were able to afford to live and properties were increasing, but they were able to borrow from the bank. So the people's lives, they could feel were improving even though their real wages weren't increasing. Now, since China has started to um, really move up the income ladder, uh, the wages have increased. So actually, the wages in Russia are lower than the wages in China right mm -hmm. now. And so that will tell you that the cost of Chinese goods will be going up um, and are going up. And you know what I'm trying to say here is that the easy solution that we had before is not really there. I mean, perhaps Africa, um, which has enough people to enter into the labor market, a lot of young people, um, could provide these goods, but in the absence of that, then we're back to this issue of um, what to do about this income inequality. Uh, so, some so an interesting fact. There was a discussion about the uh, French Revolution, and it's often thought that revolutions occur following periods of declines in income, national income. But it seems. It's not a sort of a proven thing, but it seems that actually it's the opposite. It's periods of income growth followed by stagnation mm. that cause the revolution. And the argument is that it's because people get used to their incomes growing. And then when it stops growing, they feel what they're missing out on. So That's if, interesting. you know, when... People don't feel there's any hope that their lives can get better. There's nothing to fight for. But once they feel there is a possibility of it, that's when they demand change. Then I guess the deeper question is, what is the possible change uh, that can happen? Um, you know, there, there's many reasons why the, the Western, if you want to call it the capitalist economy, is deeply flawed. And uh, some of it's to do with the way the taxation system is set up. Some it's to do with the way there's political capture. But it, it's it promotes oligarchism. You know, people that it's easy for people once people move past a threshold, it's very it's much easier for them to keep accumulating wealth. So one possibility out of this um, is. Uh, this German model where, you know, if you take a standard Western um, corporate charter and you talk about who is on the board of directors, it's the shareholders, right? And they're the ones that decide. In Germany, the workers are actually part of the board and they have decision their representatives. Their representatives there. Um, and this, I think, goes back to the argument of Marx, who's many of his arguments are intuitively appealing, but it's very difficult to write down um, a formal argument for, at least I found it difficult to. But the idea is that, you know, 
if everything was fair, you'd give all the factors of production what they um, uh, what they deserve, um, which is the marginal product, um, how much each additional person can produce for the company. So this is all well and fair, but it depends who's deciding this. Okay, so um, if of course everyone that's deciding this is the owners of production then you can think of a situation where all of the owners are somehow colluding to take more. Um, the reason why this argument is uh, flawed is that you know companies compete against each other. So you'd think that with a degree of competition that workers' wages would go up. So I don't think that going to this sort of direction of uh, diminishing um, or restricting the roles of the um, owners of capital is the way forward. I think I have personally a lot of sympathy for um, a state-run or state-owned, managed, um, or influenced economy to the extent that the private sector is able to manage it. Um, because in this sense, if the shareholder is the state, then there's a sort of social obligation behind it. But uh, what we don't want in a situation where individual entrepreneurship um, and uh, progress is stymied because the reason why capitalism is so appealing and so successful is that each person can see the inefficiencies around them. And it's up to each person to try and uh, has the opportunity to make, take advantage of this. And in doing so, they make a profit. And so once you start restricting people's ability to make money out of this, you start creating a more and more inefficient uh, system. So I think, uh, I think I've gone around in circles a bit to answer your question, but um, in terms of where we go here, I do think I do have some sympathy for having uh, corporate decisions include um, the welfare of the workers, uh, the employees, I do think that the tax systems are very much biased towards um, owners, um, the wealthy. So even if you remove all these tax havens, it's much easier for people that own businesses to reduce the amount of effective tax that they pay. Um, and uh, also inheritance. This is something that is not such an issue in Russia right now because most of the wealth was made one generation ago. Um, but in the U.S., you have multiple generations that are living off the Good wealth accumulated money. from the past. And a very nice set of videos with Milton Friedman where he asks, somebody asks, isn't this unfair that, um, you know, the children get huge inheritance from their parents? And they ask, suppose that the parents of, um, so two people get together, a man and a woman, and one is a brilliant musician and the other is a brilliant physicist and they have a child, so isn't it unfair that this child has great genes from the parents? So he says this is the same thing as giving wealth. So I disagree with this. I think that there should be a limit, um, a restriction on how much money should be able to be transferred across. I think all wealth in, event in the end belongs, is a public good, right? I think everything belongs to the world, how abstractly you define it. But... Uh, there are sort of specific things that can be done that can help um, in terms of at this level. And this is sort of the level most people talk about. Um, I think you know, in at least the developed countries, um, 
the Western countries, things like uh, opportunity at an early age matters a lot. Um, for example, giving uh, mothers access to health, uh, uh, childcare, paying for um, free childcare, giving health, um, also um, access to good public schools and access to universities. So once people have fairly equal access to these things, you create a more equal society. Um, I mean, I grew up in Australia and uh, in many ways Australia developed at least until recently maybe it still is into a fairly equal society of course there is still the ultra rich actually that were created out of the mining boom but putting that aside it's a very equal society because even if you're rich you're not like multiples richer than others and most people can have a decent quality of life um, regardless of the profession they do uh, many of the blue-skilled jobs are very highly paid. Uh, for example, you know, plumbers earn more than professors sometimes mm. over there. And that has a lot to do with having a very good uh, education system um, from the school level to university, um, university, to get into university. There's lots of universities and also the government gives loans. There's public health care. Um, there's childcare facilities um, and public transport, at least it used to be fairly cheap. So I think these are kind of the prerequisites to think about mm -hmm. giving equal opportunity to people regardless of where they were born. So the accessibility of all yeah. those public goods. Yeah. But what exactly can, can governments do to, to reduce inequality apart from providing uh, equal opportunities in terms of child care, public transport, etc. Uh, I, I didn't uh, really understand whether you are in favor of like progressive taxation uh, uh, or other measures that uh, some would say lean towards socialism a little bit, or uh, are you against them? I haven't got a clear, I can't give you a simple answer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so um, the problem with progressive taxation is that uh, you're kind of harming the people that are producing the most for the economy and it's not what it the people it targets and affects is not the upper class is not the rich it's the middle class and the upper middle class they suffer most they're the ones that are affected by um, progressive taxation so the professional in the in Russia, this is not the case, unfortunately. But you can the U.S. doctors generally earn a lot, so if they work harder, they run their own practice or do multiple consultancies in different hospitals, they can earn quite a lot, and very quickly they reach the top tax bracket. Same with investment bankers, um, lawyers, consultants. lawyers, consultants, and maybe you don't like these professions, but the people that are in these professions typically are not. Um, ones that are born with a silver spoon in their mouth, uh, just yeah, it's hard uh, work. Yeah, I used I used to work at an international law consultancy okay. <laughs> firm, so I know it. So you don't want to discourage people from going into these professions through having a taxation system that's skewed uh, in this way. Are they are they really discouraged by that fact? I've heard multiple times uh, 
people from upper middle class or uh, uh, people who earn uh, quite a lot of money I, I i've heard them say mm, i'm all for progressive taxation uh, tax me even more i want to share my uh, my money with the with the needy yeah i think that's i suspect this is a minority um because once you're after a certain level perhaps it doesn't matter um at least sort of people that i know that have worked themselves up through the ladder they're very much disappointed by the fact they had a career point where everything that they earn is now 50 to 60% taken by the government and they're saying you know why should i be working 100 hours a week doing this and where i can work less have a more comfortable life and earn less and then as society we have to see whether it's worth this difference you know it's easy to say like let's punish them but they have an option to work less and maybe that's going to be less efficient so yeah I, i don't think this is necessarily the right way to go taxing wealth uh maybe a better way to go um mm. so taxing extremely wealth wealthy people uh, yeah we have to be careful again defining what is extremely wealthy because in australia where you know very few people were born wealthy almost everybody that owns a home is now a millionaire <laughs> right just because the property prices have increased So then, you know, in that situation, uh, you know, who is wealthy? Same in Moscow, right? People that were inherited an apartment are suddenly very wealthy and should we tax them? Um, you know, is it because of uh, some unfair system that they got this? And if you tax them but they don't have the cash to pay, then you have a problem as well. So how should it work? Uh, am I right to assume that uh, taxing wealth uh, is uh, opposed to taxing income because you tax uh, like the net worth of yeah. a person, right? Yeah. Yeah. So taxing the net wealth is then you're a better able to judge who is in a more privileged position to give um, to others. Um, and the second thing is... Um, but even then you have to be careful because you know suppose that you could decide whether to tax someone's income or to tax someone's wealth uh if people have more money to spend so you don't tax their income this is then good for the economy because they're spending more which means there's more jobs okay more income for somebody else if you're taxing somebody's wealth on the other hand um what is wealth wealth is savings which has been used for investment right so if you tax wealth what you're going to do is then reduce the amount of investment in the economy you're going to raise interest rates right and so, people will just spend that money on goods but not invest uh, exactly and if you want to create more goods in general for the future you need more investment so you know there's no, i mean this is why i find economics so fascinating that there's no really real easy answers here um on how to move forward um you know so it's very much uh a decision on which negative outcome are we willing to bear the most choosing between different types of evil exactly which evil do we prefer <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i mean just to summarize my point it's it's i don't believe there's an easy answer here i think it's and we don't want to make these 
economic statements based on a political ideology or political goal. Um, we want to be clear what will be the consequences of these decisions. Maybe this is what we want. Maybe we want to take all the wealth from the rich and give it to the poor. Maybe we want to give it to the state. But I think we should, as a society, be aware of what all these trade-offs are and um, understand what the whether the consequences are something that we actually would want to accept. Unfortunately, I think uh, economic measures uh, uh, have always been influenced by political considerations and I think that that has been quite often the main the main purpose attaining some political yeah. goal that's why the economy is a, such a strange and complicated thing yeah I mean, the economy is just you and I it's it's people it's not a machine it's not like some rich uh, fat guy you know smoking a cigar it's really just ordinary people and um, ordinary people aren't objects in a machine they have hopes and dreams and incentives and weaknesses and you know these all these considerations need to be included when you decide what is right um, but you know I think the things which are irrefutable I think is really to make sure that everyone starts their life with a very equal footing equal opportunities And that means, um, you know, especially in Russia, investing in universities, uh, investing in schools. Um, and this is something that, you know, one generation may miss out, but in the longer run, this is what will pay off better. And investing in hospitals, you know, hospitals and education. Uh, what would you say is the most efficient economic system today? Which country has the most successful and efficient economy? Well, efficiency, you know, just means given the amount of resources, given a set of resources, what system produces the most. And um, I would say that it would be the U.S. Um, because the U.S. is extremely flexible. The people are extremely hardworking. Um, and it's, uh, it moves very quickly. They're very innovative So there's a lot to admire about the American system, even though it has a lot of flaws. If you move into the Asian system, um, the Japanese, the Chinese, it's much more regimented. Um, it's less innovative at an individual level, but it's successful because each person uh, specializes much more to a greater degree, and you get gains from just everyone doing a smaller task, but more repetitively. Um, but it's not really the way forward. I think, you know, I, I tell. So you don't think that uh, the Chinese economy is more efficient? I don't think it's the system that even they are aspiring to, because you can't sustain a system where everyone is just doing mechanical tasks. The only way to really increase prosperity is for um, to have an economy that's very capital intensive, which is so the machines. Are, Uh, producing lots of goods with less work, less workers. And uh, that means each worker has to be more creative, more able, more flexible. Um, I mean, I t always tell my students uh, that, you know, forget about just solving problems, doing all of this mental gymnastics. Mm -hmm. um, there'll always be somebody that's better than you out there that can solve a problem, solve a puzzle 
but what's really valued in the job market and um, what will help their career is the ability to abstract, which means to see, um, take a very complicated situation in the real world, break it down its, to its components, to um, to see what is how all of these components work together, and then to provide a solution. And even going beyond this, it's to identify what are the potential risks, potential problems that can occur. And I tell them that the people that are the most valuable in any company are the people that have this ability. Because you can always get somebody else to solve the problem. But to get somebody that understands a problem, it's, it's much more rare. So I think this is reflects just the way that um, people's, um, the greatest value people have over machines is our ability to be creative. Well, for the time being. <laughs> for the time, yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, the AI. Um, wouldn't, uh, what do you think will happen when uh, the machines learn to do everything we can do? Will there be like universal basic income for people and they will not work at all? It's very hard to think that far ahead. So the question, first question is whether machines will replace humans. And machines can't replace humans because machines don't know what humans want, right? Because they're not humans. Well, in some aspects, they are already replacing humans. But they don't know what humans want. Yeah, they are programmed they to predict. Yeah. So um, now the more that machines can take on these more complicated human tasks, the more productive an individual person should be. Um, at least that's the idea. That means bringing AI should make everyone wealthier. However, there will be a transition period where the people whose jobs are being replaced are much worse off. And the question is, what do we do about those people? Yeah, like truck drivers. There will be no truck drivers yeah. in 10 years. Yeah, and it becomes very difficult to for someone to retrain after they spent 20, 30 years doing a single job. So then, you know, who's there to support them? What else can they do? Uh, and, you know, the easy answer is to say that the state should step in But at the end of the day, there's, um, I don't think people would ever want to just you know, sit at home and do nothing. People always, you know, the nature of humanity is to be inquisitive. Yeah, they will find some, something to occupy themselves with, yeah. but not necessarily for money. Well, they have to trade, right? Unless, you know, we're in a perfect socialist system where everyone gets the same amount of Salary, um, you'll still have to be able to give something to get something. So the principle of trade will always be there, you know. But what if machines become more efficient, uh, more productive than humans in uh, every imaginable area? So it's uh, impossible for you to out-compete the machine. So you just uh, cannot earn money other than just uh, receive some subsidies, pensions. But who owns the machines? I don't know. The corporations, probably. Or well, all, all, all the governments. Who owns the corporations? People. <laughs> so, so in the end, and who controls the government? It's people. 
it may not be your people, but it will be people. So then we're still back to the same, you know, political issues that we have now. And this will lead to even greater inequality, right? Those who control the all-powerful AI will reap all the rewards. It's hard to believe we'll end up in that sort of system, in a complete enslavement. People will just not be happy and not accept this. So, Luddites, new movements to fight with technology, to destroy machines? If the humans, uh, let me put it this way, suppose that the humans are useless. If the humans are useless, then it's better for them just to leave that economy and start their own economy. Mm, how would that work? Well, they can just go into a, their own farm and... Ah, like uh, <laughs> downshifting. Own, yeah, they can have their own little kibbutz, as they used uh-huh. to have. And, you know, they can then trade with each other again. So either people are useful or they're not useful. If they're useful, that means they'll be able to trade with the uh, production of the machines. If they're not useful, they'll just leave this economy and... So they can't stay? But what would, how would they earn money? Uh, universal basic income, for example. I, I've heard that experiments in some countries have shown that this may be effective. Certain amount of money uh, every month that uh, is enough to, to, to get by, to, to have all the basic needs covered. Okay, so we can take a more, uh, come back to reality. Okay. And, uh, so in terms of universal basic income, so it's been tried in uh, several northern European countries, Scandinavian countries, as well as in the U.S., There's uh, two forms of this. One is uh, unemployment benefits, and the second is in terms of minimum wages, which they call the living wage. The unemployment benefits was, I think, at least what I've seen in um, Scandinavia, it was appreciated by uh, the people that were receiving them, but it didn't seem to lead to any better outcome for them in terms of their job prospects. But they had money, so that was better for them than nothing. Yes, but you know, people's dignity depends on their work. And the inability to find work is really a, um, something they don't want. So giving people money without yeah. a job is not... It's not really the same, it's a job, it's the purpose that people are looking for. And to give them a job, it gives people's dignity, a purpose in life, and... That's why the market and the economy is so important. It's not really just a source of money. In the U.S., this is much more accentuated. So if you spend any significant time there, you get the sense that people's value, um, the perception of their own value, comes from how much, how they uh, interact in the market. Yeah. And it's not so much a, um, a nominal thing where they're trying to show off how much they earn. It's really that... They're very proud that they're earning this because it reflects how much they're contributing to society. You know, they, they very much judge themselves on uh, whether the amount of money they earn today uh, has been justified. So I think that's the right way to think about it. It's um, uh, the Protestant work ethic. Yeah, yeah. You don't think it will change, for example, with the automatization of uh, most jobs? People will no longer feel that they need to have a job 
at least in the conventional sense, uh, to have uh, their life purpose uh, fulfilled. Maybe they will do something like create some art. They will not just uh, stay at home and play video games, but uh, jobs will not be attached to self-actualization any longer. Do you find this plausible? Well, I can speak from my personal experience. So my decision to become a professor is not based on salary or income. Mm -hmm. It's because of um, my genuine passion and desire for to learn and understand about the world as well as to be able to you know, contribute to the lives of young people. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think many people choose their professions, at least I tell my students to choose their professions based on what they're passionate about yeah. doing and to treat their job like their hobby. So I think in that sense, what they earn becomes irrelevant. So there'll always be stuff for people to do if they're you know, passionate about being an artist, they'll do that. But, you know, it's always very sad when people uh, feel that they're stuck doing a certain job for the sake of earning money. And I think most people are. Most people feel this way. Unfortunately, there'll be a lot of people, yes. Um, and, you know, there's always um, ways they can improve their situation. There's always ways they can make their situation better. They may not be able, most people won't be able to change their jobs straight away or their careers, but at least within that job, they can find things that bring them joy. Because if you really hate your job, it's like being in prison, right? It's, <laughs> um, so I think most people that do have their job, they, f they can find joy from this task, whatever that task is. Um, so that's why I think this idea that once we have AI and robots that humans will have nothing to do is not true because we always want to do something. It's fundamental to, to our dignity. What would you recommend people who want to um, understand uh, more about uh, economics, to understand the economic trends better, but don't have the fundamental economic education? So in terms of reading material, uh, I would suggest the um, Financial Times um, and The Economist. They're very much kind of, especially The Economist, you would say it's right-leaning. Mm -hmm. um, nevertheless, uh, their analysis is usually very clear, and you can understand what they're trying to say and why. Whereas in a lot of other newspapers, it's just it's not really quite clear what the economic argument uh, they're making. In terms of other sources... Um, it's always very, I, I found it fascinating personally to watch all these clips of um, Milton Friedman mm -hmm. speaking on uh, YouTube. And there's like mini interviews where like students are asking questions. And the questions that they ask are very much relevant today. And, you know, he'll give an answer which will surprise you. You may disagree, you know, all of the time, but it'll definitely get you to think Hayek who's a famous Austrian economist. There's several YouTube videos of his, which will also just surprise you. And I think that's a useful exercise to kind of challenge the way you're thinking about the world. There's a famous book by Hayek called The Road to Serfdom. And in that, he says that uh, he had a conversation with somebody, and it was along the lines that if you take the roads in Germany, they're perfectly paved and beautiful. 
And if you take the roads in England, they're full of potholes and they're mm-hmm. broken. And so they ask which which system is more efficient. And he says the English one, because in the German one, they're spending too much on roads. <laughs> right. So then, you know, it really gets you to think about what is the right way to think about uh, the problem. Is it really obvious? And that sort of sharpens your intuition. Well, um, I'm sure that's... Uh that's very valuable recommendations. Uh, all the links to the books and videos and other sources mentioned in uh, this podcast, as usual, will be in the description of the video version of this podcast on YouTube. And if you listen to the audio version of this podcast, the links will be in the description of the podcasting platform that you listen to, that you use. Udara, thank you so much for sharing your insights. With us, please, uh, if you like this video, uh, click the like button, click the subscribe button and ding the bell button not to miss further videos on my YouTube channel. If you liked uh, my podcast on audio platforms, uh, please write a review. I, I read all the reviews and please rate this podcast and see you next week. So, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.